Welcome into Inside the Pile on the Podcast. This is our third podcast of the 2015 season. Recapping everything from week three in the NFL, as well as looking forward to week four and what we have coming up there. Definitely one of the more lopsided weeks in the NFL, really in, in recent history with a number of blowouts. And joining me here to talk about all of those games is Mark Schofield from InsideThePylon.com. Mark, hello, hello. Hello, my friend. Hello, Mr. Zotta. How are you today? Outstanding, outstanding. And definitely it was, I won't say these were the most exciting games because there were an awful lot that weren't particularly close, but definitely we saw some, some big scores, some defenses playing some pretty good football as well. Right. I mean, I think one score that kind of jumps out, and we've talked about this team, or, or particularly this defense a little bit already, but, you know, the St. Louis Rams, you know, they lose a game to the Steelers, and Pittsburgh loses Ben Roethlisberger for a couple of weeks, which we'll get into. But that defense still looks really stout here at the beginning of the season. We can talk about them a little bit. Then you've got some of the blowouts you mentioned. Obviously, the Patriots winning big over Jacksonville. Um, Arizona, that's a team that's rolling right now. Yeah. I know we're going to talk about them a bit. Um, Indianapolis getting their first one of the season in comeback fashion. Um, how about the, might have how to about talk the Bills? To you a little bit about that game. Yeah. How, how about the Bills knocking uh, knocking Miami off forty one fourteen as well? Right. That's another score that kind of jumps out. I, you get the sense that things aren't quite settled down in South Beach right now with what's going on with the Dolphins. I mean, we heard last week about Nadomik and Sue kind of freelancing a bit in that defense. Yeah. This week they go up to you know they face the Bills and kind of lay an egg in that game, that's a team that's kind of got, you know, a lot of people kind of talked about Miami making the leap this year, and so far through three weeks, we haven't quite seen it yet. A lot of rumors that uh, head coach down there may be on the outs with a new GM having come in prior to the season. Going to be something that's interesting to watch, especially if you potentially have a lame duck coach if that team does end up checking out over the course of the season. Yeah, that's right. So we're going to turn now to... Mark, is this your favorite segment of the week? It's so far, yeah. I think it is my yeah. favorite segment of the week, and it's nice to have a sponsor too. I mean, again, that that that's great to have NASA step up and sponsor the Harry Stamper All Go Offensive Play of the Week. It's just great. It is my favorite part of the week as well. And last week we went through Amari Cooper's sixty-eight yard touchdown, really bringing some life to that Raiders franchise. This week. We're going to talk about a big performance from another wide receiver here, A.J. Green on the end of an Andy Dalton 80-yard touchdown. Mark, big things that you took away from this play. What, what made it happen? Well, kind of what made it happen, I mean, first of all, it's kind of set the scene for everybody. Um, Baltimore has just gone ahead and taken the lead in this game. Cincinnati's on the road. It's the first time they've actually trailed all season. So after 173 minutes of game time, they're finally down. Um, they're on the road. And they score immediately on a huge play. They come out with 12 offensive personnel, which if you've read the inside the pylon glossary, you know is one running back, two tight ends, two wide receivers. They put both wide receivers and a tight end to the left side of their formation, single tight end to the right, and they run basically four verticals, all four receivers going deep. The tight end on the left, Tyler Efert, he's going to come across the field first. So he kind of runs like a post route and then breaks up the uh, up the seam a bit. And Baltimore's in the absolutely worst defense for this play because they have a single high safety and man coverage. Yep. And what's tough about this play from a defensive point of view, if you're the free safety now, you're going to have two vertical routes, one on each side of you. 
So on, from the free safety's perspective, he's got A.J. Green in the slot running a vertical route up the seam, and now he has the tight end crossing in front of his face and then breaking up the other hash mark. So he's got these two vertical routes. He's going to try, this is Will Hill, he's going to try to maintain leverage on both of these vertical routes and read Andy, Andy Dalton's eyes, wait to break on the throw until the last possible minute. Normally, in years past, you could probably make this play against Andy Dalton. He's a quarterback that sometimes makes mistakes, sometimes stares down receivers. Not on this play. From the quarterback's perspective, what he's doing is he's trying to influence Will Hill to one receiver and then come back and throw to the other. So he's trying to use his eyes, look at one receiver, look at maybe Efert on his route, and then come back to Green, and that's exactly what he does. It's a perfectly placed throw, and A.J. Green goes into beast mode from there. Breaks two tackles, then races Jimmy Smith to the end zone, touchdown, 80-yard scoring play. Cincinnati's back in front. They trailed for eight seconds at that point in the season. When you talk about this being a difficult play for a, uh, a, a safety to play simply due to the fact that he has, in, in cover one, he's got multiple routes coming at him and he has to make that snap decision. Is this a case where a quarterback like Dalton can recognize that look at the line and is pretty much just salivating based on what he thinks is coming? Right, and that's why four verticals, it's such a kind of popular concept right now at every level of football because it's a play that's really tough to defend. You have multiple options. I mean, people might ask, well, you know, given that formation, why doesn't the coverage kind of change their coverage to cover two? Well, if you do that, now you've got two deep safeties, the two inside vertical routes will occupy those two safeties and now you've got one-on-one coverage on the outside with two vertical routes so I mean when I was playing and I assume that quarterbacks in the NFL who are 10 million times better than I ever was when you've got four verticals called you're salivating when you get to the line of scrimmage because you know that regardless of coverage you're going to have a chance to make a big play down the field if you're a defensive coordinator how do you combat that what's the what's the cleanest way to deal with it I mean, cleanest way is probably to go cover four where you drop all four defensive backs deep into a deep quarter zone. Yep. But then what you're doing is you you're give up the dink and dunk. underneath to the run game. That's exactly right. Yeah. So it's there's no easy way for a defense to deal with it. From an offensive perspective, though, this is a case in order to be able to run it effectively, you need to run this play. You need to be able to have an offensive line that can give you the time to make that drop and make that read. Right. And that's, you know talking about how a defense can combat the four verticals concept, pressure might be the easiest way to do it because you've got to let these receivers get down the field and it takes a little bit of time for that play to develop. And if the quarterback's facing pressure in his face and can't get, you know, doesn't have time to let the play develop, that's a way that you can combat that. Absolutely. We're going to move now and bring in our correspondent, also from InsideThePylon.com, Dave Archibald. Dave, good to have you here today. Great to be on again. Absolutely. Dave, I know you were taking a look at the Carolina-New Orleans game last weekend. Uh, I know you had written a little bit about it. What were your takeaways in terms of what were some of the key points that influenced this game when it was actually played? I, I had written a preview piece, and I think what we saw in the preview piece came to pass in terms of Carolina has a really strong pass defense. And New Orleans has had an uncharacteristically difficult time getting the passing game going. Uh, part of that was, you know, having to turn to Luke McCown rather than starter Drew Brees. But uh, I think at one point, McCown was, I think, 21 of 23 passing, but only for nine first downs. Yeah. Um, 
Carolina runs a, uh, a zone scheme, but their linebackers are so fast that they can, you know, they'll give you the, the dump off and tackle it for a two or three yard gain. They'll give you that all day. So when you look at this, and obviously this is a game that I know if you're a Saints fan, probably have to continue to be pretty discouraged here. I mean, I don't think there there was a lot of hope they were going to pull out a win, but it was a close game. It was a five-point game, so you're in that type of game. You'd like to get that against a divisional opponent, and this could be something that does hurt them if they're able to get it together down the stretch here. Yeah, they're they're 0-3 now, so that puts them in quite the hole with both Carolina and the Falcons 3-0. and So in terms of uh, taking a look at some other NFC games here, I know you also wrote about there was a critical pick that Brandon Whedon threw in his first week replacing Tony Romo as the Cowboys starter. Talk to us a little bit about this play. What, what exactly were the causes of this pick? Why did we see this happen? Well, the uh, the big thing that happened was that Paul Solia uh, got pressure up the middle. He, he beat Travis, center Travis Frederick right off the snap to the A-gap and uh, – of course, leading to scramble out of the pocket to his left. He tried to uh, make something happen and get the ball to Jason Witten, who was open, but he failed the throw, and William Moore picked it off. And that set up Atlanta for a big touchdown. Now, Whedon ended up finishing 22 of 26 for about 230 yards, did have that one pick, no touchdowns. What did you make of his overall performance? Obviously, this was a critical critical error that he made, but on the whole, what, what was your take on him? Yeah, I think he gave them what Dallas uh, would hope he would give them, which is he made that one mistake, which is bad. Uh, I think he, he took another sack or, or two that, that weren't great, but you know, he was able to move the ball even without Des Bryant. Uh, the, the bigger issue is Dallas's run defense is actually first in the NFL coming into the game yards per carry. They totally fell apart in the second half. Devontae Freeman ran for 141 yards and three touchdowns. When you give up 39 points, you're probably going to lose the game. Yeah, and Devontae Freeman is a guy who prior to this game only had about 290 yards rushing in his entire career over the first two seasons. So it's not a situation where you had someone who was coming in with you know a big reputation and a record of success. This really speaks to, look, the Cowboys' defense didn't do anything to stop the run game here. Yeah, and Atlanta's offensive line has struggled, uh, you know, not only this season but the past couple seasons as well. So uh, it wasn't a good time for the Cowboys' defense. But they're also missing uh, Greg Hardy and uh, um, Randy Gregory and uh, Jeremy Mincy. So their, their D-line is pretty beat up. Now, Dave, I know in terms of week four games, you're looking ahead and you're, I know you're taking a look at the Houston-Atlanta game that's coming up. What have you seen so far in film that people should be looking for when those two teams meet on Sunday? Well, when you, you talk about Atlanta, you've got to start with Julio Jones, who's currently the NFL's leading receiver. Uh, he's been a big play weapon. Atlanta is actually first in the NFL in completing deep passes. They're completing something like 70% of their deep passes. And that'll be interesting against Houston because Houston plays uh, they have good cornerbacks with Jonathan Joseph, Kareem Jackson, and rookie Kevin Johnson, who I liked a lot coming out of Wake Forest. And they also play a very conservative scheme. They play a lot of off-man. They play a lot of cover four. 
So I, I think they're going to take away that deep ball to Julio Jones. And what'll be interesting is uh, to see how Atlanta counteracts that. I think they ran a lot of uh, wide receiver screens to Jones against the, the Giants. And I, I think we'd see that this week, a lot of short uh, passes taking advantage of those cushions. Definitely, definitely. Well, Archie, appreciate you coming on with us today, and I know we'll be looking for that article coming out in the next day or two. Uh, I know it will be up on InsideThePylon.com. So, again, Archie, uh, Dave Archibald, appreciate you coming on today. Uh, Thanks. Great to be on. Absolutely. That was Dave Archibald, and you can read all of his previews on InsideThePylon.com. He typically does a couple games a week for us, and I do want to look back a little bit more to Week 3 now, Mark, and in particular – couple of teams that I don't know if they have issues. One one team definitely has an issue with the quarterback at this point. Let's start there with the Pittsburgh Steelers. But, but, yeah, it's, you have Roethlisberger potentially out anywhere from four to six weeks is what we're hearing. Wh- what do they do here? Right. I mean, I think at the outset, if you look at what Pittsburgh did against St. Louis um, after Roethlisberger went down, um, you're going to see first, this is going to be Le'Veon Bell's team for a couple of weeks now. Um, they tried to get him going in the run game. Again, something tough to do against that stout Atlanta defense that is kind of looking like they're built in the mold of the 2000 Ravens, the 2001 Patriots, a team that can win with a defense that's holding teams to 10, 14 points a game. And then can just if they can get just a little bit of offense, that's going to be a really good team as the season goes forward. But for Pittsburgh... Um, you're going to see a lot of the run game. And then what they did passing when, when Vic came into the game, they did a lot of short throws and a lot of screens. I mean, it looked at every single throw Vic made in that game. His first pass was a running back screen. His second pass was a deep ball, but it was to Bell, who had motioned out of the backfield. They went empty, and he put a double move um, on the coverage there for a play. But then every throw in the fourth quarter was pretty much within four or five yards of the, of the line of scrimmage. Quick screens, stuff underneath, quick slants, quick curl routes. Now, that might have been a function of what they had game planned for him ready to go in case he had to come into the game due to injury. But now they turn around on a short week here. They play Thursday night with Baltimore. So it'll be interesting to see how much they can put in from a game plan perspective to get that offense ready to go on Thursday night. Well, and I wonder, and my question to follow up on that is, the best weapon that this team has is Antonio Brown. Arguably, you could you could say he's one of the top three receivers in the NFL right now. Right. If if you can't get the ball to him consistently, you're you're talking about really struggling to get this offense going. So, what types of play design do you think they're going to use to try to get the ball to Brown, even if they don't have the full playbook in? I mean, I think a couple of things you're going to see. You're going to see a lot of quick screens this Thursday night. I bet. Baltimore is a team that can do a lot in terms of generating pressure. One of the best ways to work against that is the screen game. So I wouldn't be surprised to see some screens to Antonio Brown early on the outside, try to get him the ball in space, let him make some plays. Another thing, you know, you're going to see them take a deep shot here or there. Um, Teams have to do it in the NFL to kind of expand a defense, both vertically and horizontally. They're going to have to try to get the ball down the field. I'm sure that they've got some stuff in there that they had with for Roethlisberger. Now it's just up to Michael Vick whether he can execute the throws now. He's still a very good quarterback, very capable backup in this league, and it'll be interesting to see what they can do offensively on this starting Thursday night. Yeah, and, and turning now to another team that has had 
I, and it, it feels almost ridiculous to be talking about this, but saying that they have issues at quarterback, but Andrew Luck for the Indianapolis Colts obviously has not been up to the admittedly high standards that he set for himself. His numbers through the first three weeks, 56% completion percentage, five TDs, seven picks. Uh, it, it just has, and it, it hasn't looked easy for him, even in the win. What is going on here exactly? Is this something that we should be talking about or am I just wasting my breath? I mean, I think it's something we should be talking about. And we talked about this in our first podcast. It's, it's, it starts with protection. Um, if you, I took a look at that game and particularly the two interceptions that he threw, and we can start with the second one first to kind of talk about this a bit. On the second interception, he gets pressure at his face. He's flushed out of the pocket. He's forced to scramble, try to buy time with his feet tries to make a throw on the run, fading away from yet more pressure, throw doesn't get there, and it's picked. So when a quarterback starts feeling pressure and starts facing pressure on snap after snap after snap, sometimes they try to do too much. So if you look out at the first interception he threw, it was a basic weak side out route. He's facing cover one, so he knows that, you know, the coverage is playing off-man coverage, so he knows that that's a pretty good place to go with the football, but he tries to get too cute with it. He stares down the middle of the field safety and then comes late to swivel his head, look at the route and throw all in one motion. He's missed the fact that the Parrish Cox, the cornerback on that side of the field, has already started to cut under the route. So he's trying to make up for other failings on the offensive scheme and how things are going by doing a little bit too much, even just something that seems simple as trying to stare down a free safety to hold them in the middle of the field, and it comes back to bite him. Is there anything mechanically that's a problem here, or is this just decision-making right now due to the pressure? I think it's more decision-making due to the pressure. Luck's a very sound mechanical quarterback. He's one of the guys that I love to watch. I love to break down from a mechanic standpoint because he does things in the pocket that are so subtle, but, you know, from climbing the pocket to keeping his off hand on the football when he's moving around to how he generates torque through the throw. He's fine from a mechanical point. It's just a matter of this offense trying to get everything sorted out from from a protection standpoint. But I want to talk to you about something. Is Pat McAfee still mad at you? <laughs> I don't think Pat McAfee loves me, but I, I, I think that, and for those of you who aren't familiar, we, we were talking about, we did an article on, uh, on Inside the Pylon earlier this week about the fake punt that the Colts ran. And I actually, I, I hypothesized that even though Pat McAfee had said that it was his decision to call the fake, I said that it looked like it might have been a, a call from the bench just because the blocking scheme up front was not what you would typically see from a punt formation. There were a couple things that seemed a little different, and so we had a little bit of a disagreement there. I didn't mean anything disrespectful to Pat, but I just said, look, I think that this, you know, maybe they're just trying to keep some of their secrets a little closer to their chest. What were some of the things that you saw in that play that led you to come to the conclusion that this was a call made from the sideline? Well, it, it was two things in the blocking scheme in particular. The, the, the right tight end in the formation, essentially in, in punt blocking, you typically take kick slides, two kick slides, maybe three, and then engage your block in order to make sure that you're getting depth and not out of position. The, the right tight end goes immediately for a cut block, which made it just, the first time I saw it, I said, well, that, that doesn't look like it was improvised. That looks like it was drawn up. 
So that was the first piece, but beyond that, the entire rest of the offensive line, when I was looking at what they were doing, they all decided, and I say decided, they all blocked down to the left in order to really push the defensive line to the left of the formation, and that left the entire right side wide open. So from my perspective, it looked like it looked like a designed fake. Now, Pat McAfee, love his, love his game to death. He's the best punter in the NFL. He is the best punter tackler in the NFL. But on this case, I said, look, I, I don't know if this was actually your decision, and we agreed to disagree on that one. So nature of the beast, I guess. Just two, guess. Just two punters, two punters and kickers disagreeing with each other. You know? I mean, it's it's nice that in this day and age now we can get punters talking to punters on Twitter about running the football. How great is that? It's a beautiful world. It is a beautiful world. And we're going to segue now into a little bit of Denver Broncos discussion. And we are joined on the line by Brandon Thorne. And Brandon, appreciate you coming on with us today. Hey, thanks for having me, David. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Brandon, when we talk about the Broncos, and, and I want to first start just with Peyton Manning, because that's something that a lot of people have been looking at. First couple of weeks seemed pretty uncomfortable. Week three, significantly more comfortable with some changes that were made to the game plan. Can you talk a little bit about what those changes were and what you saw there? Yeah, well, in the first two games, Denver ran the pistol offense uh, twice total. And in this third game, they brought it in quite a bit more. And, uh, you know, it's pretty much a compromise between Gary Kubiak's preferred under-the-center under style system and then what Peyton likes to do in the shotgun. And, it you know, it just it doesn't telegraph, you know, the running game quite as much as, you know, the shotgun does with the running back to either side of the quarterback. So it, it keeps that aspect of the running game, you know, keeps the defense kind of on their heels, you know, with the running back lined up behind the quarterback. And that kind of opened up things for Peyton, Um you know, his yards per game is, went up each week, and he had a 300-yard passing game this past week and completed almost, almost 74% of his passes. So it uh, it definitely worked, but uh, you also got to keep in mind that Detroit's defense is uh, a little bit of a step down than their first two opponents. Hey, Brandon, it's Mark. Thanks for coming on, buddy. I wanted to ask you about – Peyton Manning's arm strength. This has been a topic that people have been discussing on Twitter. You've probably seen it from a daily basis. From three games now, what are your thoughts on the status of Peyton Manning's arm? Yeah, I'm, I'm not overly concerned about it, to be honest. Uh, you know, the last couple of years, it's, you know, more, more so than anything, for me, it's kind of his touch and his timing, you know, with the receivers. That's kind of been concerning. Um, the arm strength, though, you know, that's not Peyton Manning's game. He's a, you know, the short to intermediate game is where he excels, and I think where he still can win. Um, and you know, the the arm strength thing to me is just a little too overblown for my liking. Um, I, like I said, I think it's his touch and the timing that you know is not there with the receivers yet, but it's obviously getting there week by week. Um, and yeah, I mean, I I'd rather talk about you know the offensive line issues and uh, the running game issues because I think if those two things continue to improve, this Peyton Manning arm strength thing will be in the past sooner rather than later. Right, and that's a perfect segue to my next question, which is you do a lot of work every Monday, every Tuesday, going through the game tape and putting clips up on Twitter. If you don't follow Brandon, he's at Veteran Scout. Make sure you do that. What have you seen so far from an offensive line standpoint from the Denver offense? 
Well, it's, it's been, uh, well, let me just start off with their opponents. You know, they played Baltimore, Kansas City the first two games, which in my mind, uh, two of the top five or six front seven in football, you know, especially before Terrell Suggs went down, which he played, you know, most of that game against us. So the offensive line, having never started a game together, plus with two rookies, essentially Matt Paradis was on the practice squad last year, so he didn't play a game, and then Tyson Bralo. You know, they just didn't have time to, to mesh or to, to develop any sort of chemistry together, and it showed against those two defenses in particular. Um, but they have improved each week. Uh, one of our uh, football educator writers, Zach Grasinger, he's doing this breakdown of offensive linemen, and he uh, broke down every single lineman of every single play of the Broncos-Chiefs game. And uh, Matt Paradis and Evan Mathis, the center and left guard, are uh, by far playing the best out of the other, or those two out of the five are the best offensive linemen that we have right now. And it's an, it's an encouraging thing to see, especially for Mathis. Um, he's really improving every week. You know, uh, on Twitter and social media, he was getting really chastised, you know, for his play against the Ravens. But, I mean, he was playing against, like I said, you know, a great front seven, and it was his first game in the system, and he only had gotten signed two weeks prior. So I just think people just need to kind of calm down with the offensive line. They are imp- improving. Excuse me, Tyson Braylor is getting a little better. My biggest concern is the right side of the offensive line. Luis Vasquez and Ryan Harris, those two guys have been the most concerning, believe it or not, which those are the two most seasoned guys after Mathis. So, um, but yeah, it's, it's an encouraging thing. But also, you know, Ryan Clady going down in the preseason or in training camp, excuse me, that threw a wrench in all of this. You know, Tyson Braylor probably wouldn't even be starting. So it's, it's kind of been, you know, something that Gary Kubiak and Elway have had to just along the way and you know it's a work in progress right let's look at the other side of the ball now a lot of people have talked about this denver defense as being one of the elite units in the national football league right now what have you seen from the defense through three games what stood out to you are there any areas of weakness on this side of the ball yeah i mean that was my my biggest thing going into the season was our this this whole broncos team was going to look different than what we're used to, at least in you know the most current years. This this team reminds me more of like the older Broncos way of winning games. Um, you know, being led by the defense and trying to be led by the running game that isn't working out yet. But the defensive side of the ball certainly is. Um, you know, it's obviously it's led by Demarcus Ware and Von Miller coming off the edges, and uh, the interior defensive line is a lot better than people give them credit for. Um, I've been trying to kind of get it out there that Sylvester Williams, the former first-round pick, nose tackle is a lot better than given credit for. He's played pretty well. Um, Malik Jackson, you know, pro football focus has kind of put him in the limelight, uh, you know, kind of showing how good he really is. So those two up front kind of, you know, uh, have been a huge reason for the, the stoutness against the running game. Uh, we have depth, you know, behind Miller and Ware. I just tweeted out something this morning that said, you know, right now Denver is pressuring quarterbacks 50% of the time on their dropbacks, which is by far the best in the NFL. And I think that could be sustained because there is depth behind DeMarcus Ware and Von Miller, Von Miller being injury-prone lately, and DeMarcus Ware up in age. So it's an encouraging thing that you have 
Shaquille Barrett and Shane Ray backing those guys up. So, you know, they could stay healthy and be more fresh further into the season. So that's encouraging. Um, and then our linebackers, you know, they're, they're led by speed, really. They're really good in coverage. Danny Trevason, Brandon Marshall. Um, Brandon Marshall, I believe, was the number one coverage 4-3 outside linebacker last year. And uh, he's, you know, both those guys are young and they're improving. And then our secondary, I would put just behind the edge rushers as far as the premier groups on the defense. Uh, we're three deep at corner, which you kind of need in the NFL today, and we certainly have. And uh, T.J. Ward and Darian Stewart, who we brought over from Baltimore, played really well as well. And uh, a guy I wanted to mention, David Bruton, he's been on the team for six years. He's been a special team standout, and now he's getting time like a dime linebacker in different, you know, intriguing positions for him. You know, he made that interception last week. So he's, you know, I'm just speaking to the depth on the defense. There's just so much depth on this defense, and I think that the rate that they're playing at right now is sustainable, you know, throughout the year. And uh, which is encouraging because the offense is still a work in progress. And, you know, I think the biggest thing is the running game. And uh, that starts up from the offensive line. Absolutely. Well, great stuff, Brandon. I know that our listeners can get all of your uh, all of your writing on the footballeducator.com and also follow Brandon at Veteran Scout on Twitter. But, Brandon, appreciate you coming on with us today. And definitely we'll keep an eye out for the Broncos over the next couple of weeks to see if these things keep up. All right, thanks, guys, for having me. No problem. That was Brandon Thorne. Again, you can check him out at thefootballeducator.com and follow him on Twitter as well. His handle is at Veteran Scout. We are going to stay out west, but we're going to move over to the NFC, though, and talk a little bit about what we've seen out of the Arizona Cardinals, who I don't know if this is – I think we expected them to be good, Mark, but I don't know if we expected them to be this good through the first three weeks. Yeah, and you know we kind of talked about them. I think last week as one of the teams that could challenge Green Bay or right now in the NFC for you know the early season title of best team in the NFC. Um, but I think we kind of got a you know even though I was kind of championing them last week. Remember who they've played so far? They played New Orleans, which looks to be a team kind of as we talked about with one of our great guests last week in a bit of a rebuilding phase. Um, then week two, they go to Chicago, they play the Bears, and, you know, that's a team that's going through a fire sale right now. I mean, they're just, you know, they they traded J- Jared Allen, you know, they traded John Bostick, the linebacker, to New England this week. Yep. And, and, you know, and then this week they get San Francisco. Um, so, you know, they've – what good teams need to do is win those kinds of games, and that's what they've done, and they've done it in, you know, very good fashion with a couple of blowouts, especially this game against San Francisco. Um, they got a little bit of help from Colin Kaepernick, two early pick sixes, um, but they, you know, took care of business right away. Schedule will get a little bit tougher for them, but you know, they definitely do look good, very look very good right now. What are your thoughts on them? Well, I think I've been impressed with what I've seen, and in particular, I think and and for me, seeing Larry Fitzgerald rejuvenated the way he's been, in particular the last couple weeks, has been un- unbelievable to watch because. Larry Fitzgerald is a guy who, at age 32, most people—I won't say that he's you know in the twilight of his career—to pull the you know the Roger the Roger Clemens quote, but I think after the last couple of years, he hadn't had a thousand-yard season since 2011. Right. So it's been a while, and to see back-to-back 120-plus-yard games, five touchdowns on the season already here, definitely shows that he still has it. 
the question everyone asks, and I almost hate to ask it just because it, it is kind of a dumb question, is can Carson Palmer stay healthy the length of the season? Neither of us have a clue. We, right. we don't know. But is, does his offensive line seem to be giving him enough protection to stay upright in general? Through three games, I think so. I mean, you know, took a long look at that San Francisco-Arizona game from last week. And, you know, if you want to take a look at a confident quarterback in the pocket right now, watch what Carson Palmer is doing. I mean, you can just look at the first offensive throw that he made in that game. It was uh, They were facing cover three from San Francisco. They ran a nice passing concept to beat it where they had a deep post route from the backside. And once again, that man, Larry Fitzgerald, with a deep in cut. So they high-low the free safety. Carson Palmer takes his drop, climbs the pocket perfectly, delivers a nice, strong, accurate throw. I mean, that's an offense that is clicking right now. Mm -hmm. And they're two nice storylines from a fan's point of view. And Larry Fitzgerald and Carson Palmer, two veterans that have been through the wars. You know, Carson Palmer obviously has battled some injuries. But it'd be nice to see those two guys make a nice run here for Arizona as the season gets going and keeps going. Definitely, definitely. Well, Mark, unfortunately... We are out of time for the day, so I have to say goodbye until next week. But uh, what, I'm a just, friend. just quickly before we go, what's uh, what are your top games you're looking for this weekend? Yeah, I mean, in, in terms of games, obviously, I'm very curious to see this game Thursday night with Baltimore and Pittsburgh. I mean, that's a divisional opponent. Yep. You know, on a short week, you've got the Michael Vick situation, which we've talked about. You know, another game that kind of jumps out um, that Rams Cardinals game. I know I keep talking about St. Louis and what they're doing defensively. We just talked about Arizona and how good they've looked. It'd be yep. interested to see if that offense can keep clicking against a defense as talented as St. Louis's. I want to see Chiefs Bengals too. I'm curious to see how that Bengals team does against that Kansas City team, just to see if they're able to keep moving on offense. So I think that'll be something I'm watching as well over this weekend. But Mark, we do have to head out. So until next week, I will catch you later to all of our listeners. Make sure you check us out inside the pylon.com as well as on Twitter at ITPylon. Mark, until later, catch you later. Mr. Zara, be well. <laughs>